Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I am joined by Dr. Susan Kimmel this week, uh, an attending psychiatrist. Uh, Susan, thanks for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Awesome. Maybe could you uh, give the listeners a little bit of background on your, you know, where you went to med school and, and did your training and, and kind of where you are today? Absolutely. So I went to medical school at the Medical College of Ohio, which is now University of Toledo, which is in Toledo, Ohio. And then after that, I did my residency in psychiatry at the Cleveland Clinic and was there for four years. And after I finished at the clinic, I took a job where I am interestingly still um, at, although I've had several different renditions of what I have done, but I went to University Hospitals of Cleveland and I've been at University Hospitals for a little over, I would say 30 years at this point. So a long time, Um, done multiple different things there, but really have sort of stayed within the same system. In 2010, I went back and I actually did a fellowship in forensic psychiatry. So I felt like at that time I was interested in learning more, doing something a little bit different than what I've been doing. So, um, you know, even though you've you've picked a certain path, you can always uh, broaden that or get interested in other things. So I I changed and, and did that fellowship, which I thought was really a lot of fun and an interesting perspective after having been um, an attending and teaching residents and medical students to go back and kind of be the learner. It was kind of a brush of fresh air. So I was pretty happy with that. Interesting. Yeah. I imagine that's, that's quite a transition to go from being an attending for a certain amount of time and then go back to kind of square one, if you will, in in a certain area. (laughs) It was, I think it's different being a fellow than it would be if I was going to do a residency in something else. Uh, One of the other things is, although I would say it was a fair amount of work, it was a lot of written work. So a lot of those reports that you would do as a forensic psychiatrist, you did at home at night, there was no call involved. So uh, there were some things that um, might've made me think I could not do it, but those (laughs) been call or, you know, just, just longer hours. And there were long hours, but a lot of it, you sort of did at home and a lot of it was writing. Interesting. Now, just for the listeners, I, I actually rotated on a, a forensic psychiatry uh, rotation in med school. So I'm familiar, but maybe for people who aren't familiar, what, maybe could you elaborate on what forensic psychiatry uh, entails? Yes. So forensic psychiatry is the interface of psychiatry and the law. And it sort of encompass. it's kind of um, in, in a broad stroke, I would say that there's sort of two different divisions kind of within the forensic psychiatry. So there's a civil division that often has more to do with like workman's comp cases or insurance claims, disability claims, um, whether people have the capacity to execute a will. So that's called testamentary capacity. 
So there is a big civil piece and then there's more of a, a criminal piece. And I think that's what people think about um, when they think about a forensic psychiatry or they see somebody on law and order who's testifying as the psychiatrist. And those, um, the criminal side then would be, it would, in, it would include treatment of inmates within a correctional setting. It would include competency to stand trial reports um, so that's a here and now evaluation of, of an individual or a defendant, whether they have the capacity to understand the nature and objectives of like the legal proceedings against them and to assist counsel in their, um, in their defense so that we don't take anybody to court uh, or put them on trial who doesn't understand really the proceedings and what's going on. The other uh, report that we commonly do would be not guilty by reason of insanity. Those are people at the time of the crime really didn't understand what they were doing essentially is wrong. So um, there is a big criminal side to it. Some of us, most forensic psychiatrists, or I shouldn't say, but a lot of forensic psychiatrists think that that criminal part is, is the more interesting part. Why people do what they do, um, methods to sort of protect the mentally ill who have committed a crime but don't really understand what they're what they're doing and then those individuals at least within it's usually state by state but in ohio if you're found not guilty by reason of insanity then you are often sentenced uh, not sentenced but you're you're sent on like a commitment to the state psychiatric hospital and there's lots of safeguards before those individuals are released from the state sort of mental health system and it probably varies state by state. Obviously, I'm in, I'm in Ohio because that's where I live and am very familiar with what we do here, but it could be a little different in other states. But it's not that people just uh, walk out of jail once they're adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity. They usually are sent to a hospital and then you know, there's usually several people who have to agree to move them to a less restrictive environment, like a 24-hour supervised group home. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And would, would part of that also entail, like, are you, do you testify in court uh, frequently for that? Or is that a kind of a separate thing? So, so you can, so on the civil side, you can be called in on, on any of things like malpractice uh, would also be something that I would consider a forensic psychiatry specialist. So we, we sort of also would look at malpractice suits, both from the defense um, side as well as from the plaintiff side, and you could be called in to testify on, on pretty much any case you work on. Oftentimes, the, the two parties, the prosecutor and the defense attorney will agree and stipulate to the report. In other words, they'll just accept the report that you've submitted. If there's questions or concerns, they can definitely call you in to testify in really any case that you've done. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And is that a year long fellowship that you that typically that the people would it's, do for that? Okay. Yeah. It's one year. Interesting. Interesting. And is, is most of that inpatient work or, or is there an outpatient component to that uh, as well? So for instance, would mostly, I guess you would consider it more outpatient because, uh, or, or there are forensic psychiatrists who, for example, work in the state psychiatric hospital. So if, if the if the judge decides that the um, defendant is not competent to stand trial, 
based on the report that they're going to get either. And it's not always a psychiatrist. Sometimes it's a psychologist who also sort of does these authors, these reports. But if the judge makes that determination, looks at our report, agrees with what we've opined in terms of the opinion and have decided that they're not competent, they'll go to the state hospital for something called competency restoration. So they will get both mental health treatment and as well as they'll go to classes where they learn sort of um, pretty basic things, but a lot of things about courtroom procedures, make sure that they understand if they're offered a plea bargain, what that means, uh, that they're making rational and logical choices when they're given uh, plea bargain options. So there's a lot of forensic psychiatrists who then work within like as on the inpatient unit on like a competency restoration unit. And so those would be forensic psychiatrists as well. Most um, of the court reports, the competency to stand trial, not guilty by reason of insanity being the most common ones. Those, um, we usually work in something called court, ours is a court psychiatric clinic, but they're most places have forensic, what they call a forensic center or a court clinic where the inmates or the defendants are brought over for the evaluation. So in Cuyahoga County, um, the inmates are brought over to the offices, which are housed in the same building for us to evaluate them. In Summit County, there's a group that actually goes to the jail that does those evaluations. So it's a little different, probably county by county, depending on how big the county is and you know what kind of volume they have. But most uh, places will have a court clinic. We can also do evaluations in that setting. In bigger counties, they're going to have a mental health court. So they're going to have a subset of the judges who are specially trained to understand mental health issues and intellectual disabilities and how that might uh, be not the factor, but a factor in the charges that the individual has. So there are judges who are specially trained. And so we'll sometimes do an evaluation about eligibility for transfer to the mental health docket, which means they're going to get one of those judges who has special training in that area. Gotcha. Um, now, forgive me if this question seems trivial, but, you know, there's kind of a lot of craze in the media these days of, you know, these shows where you show like FBI profilers or people that, you know, profile criminals psychologically or anything. Is that something that a forensic psychiatrist would participate in, or is that something more like a clinical psychologist or someone in law enforcement would be more involved with? We do not necessarily have special training in profiling um, criminals. And so that probably falls more like within the FBI. I know they have special behavioral um, individuals who just sort of study those kinds of things and try to work up profiles, but I would not, at least in our fellowship, that was not anything that we specifically looked at. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's really fascinating that that intersection of, like you said, the legal system using your medical training, and then kind of, it's, it's very different than kind of what I think some other kind of the mainstream, uh, focus of medicine, which is pretty cool. Um, is this something, is this what you do 100% of the time or how, if, if not, how do you devote, what other areas of psychiatry do you work in or have you worked in in the past? So I would say um, it is definitely not 100% of what I do. I would say that the information that you learned um, during that fellowship uh, 
it, lawyers are very careful with their words. So I think it's made me much more careful when I write clinical notes about the words that I'm using and how that might be interpreted differently by different people. So I, I think that that's helpful. Um, I don't, uh, I have a few private cases. So every once in a while, somebody will reach out. You can, you know, accept those cases or say no to those, depending on how busy you are. At mm. the moment, I have very many private cases. I'm pretty busy sort of doing what I do most of the time. I spend a half a day at the court psychiatric clinic in Cuyahoga County. Um, and that definitely relates directly to the fellowship. And then I spend two half days treating inmates um, in a jail. And so I work in Summit County Jail, but um, that also, and that's just, that's not doing special evaluations. That's just treatment because they are confined and they can't go out to see their psychiatrist or be evaluated. Then we'll see them for treatment. Some of them, depending on how severely uh, ill they are, if they're extremely psychotic and they're really not eating, not drinking, too disorganized to sort of manage. We can also send them to the, we have to have a judge agree, but we can send them to the state um, psychiatric hospital on like a civil admission, just like anybody else would go. They wouldn't be a forensic person there for competency restoration or a not guilty by reason of insanity equity, but they would go um, just as a, as a civil admission. And then when they're improved and they're treated, then they'll send them back to the jail and then they can go to court. Gotcha. They, they tend to not stay as long in a civil admission. So I think what most people are going to see during medical school is our average length of stay is of five to seven days, but to be restored to competency, those people, um, you're limited about the charges. So you, you can't have stolen $5 and end up being in the state psychiatric hospital for three years <laughs> for competency. Unrestorable. So depending on, you know, what level of a crime it is, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, it depends on how long you can actually keep them in the state psychiatric hospital. So, um, but typically uh, to go for competency restoration, it's going to be a longer inpatient hospitalization than what you would normally see during medical school. So my day, so half of what I do sort of a half a day uh, every week, Monday through Friday is inpatient. So I'm on the inpatient unit that is associated with uh, Cleveland um, medical center or university hospital, sort of the Cleveland campus, kind of the main campus. There's four psychiatrists who are on that floor. So we sort of divide up the patients evenly. So half of what I see is, is inpatient. And then every half day is a little different. One half day, I am at John Carroll when I do sort of college mental health. I've also was at Case doing college mental health in the counseling center for 10 years. Uh, and like I said earlier, two of the other half days, I'm at Summit County Jail providing treatment. One half day, I'm at the court psychiatric clinic. And the other half day, I do ECT. And, and now that's branched out to be ECT and ketamine infusions. And now the new S-ketamine, nasal ketamine. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you have a very diverse practice, which is which I think is pretty interesting. I imagine that's probably what attracted you in some way is that you're never doing like the same thing over and over again, which is, we were kind of talking about that before we started recording. I, I imagine that keeps you sharp and keeps you interested. I like the variety. Not everybody does. Um, so I think you have to sort of 
you have to take the good with the bad and fill, figure out what fits for you. So some people might do like a half a day inpatient and the rest of the time be in the same office seeing outpatients. I'd rather mix it up. I like to move around. I like to see different things. I think it's uh, interesting. And otherwise, you know, I've, I've done more outpatient in the past. It hasn't necessarily, I, I liked it, but it also, I felt like it was a little draining all the time. Um, so I, this is just what I like, but I think that's very individual specific. Gotcha. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the Da Vinci Hour podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. Now, is, is inpatient psychiatry, is it in comparison to outpatient, is it analogous to like internal medicine, for example, where inpatient medicine can be a little bit more high acuity, more unpredictable, maybe longer hours versus like outpatient medicines, more, you know, predictable the patients are relatively controlled or, you know, you're just kind of maintaining things. Is that, would that be a fair comparison or is it a little different in psychiatry? I think it's a little different in psychiatry because our numbers, because there's four of us, things sort of get divided at the beginning of the day, relatively evenly. So you have a relative idea how many patients you're going to have um, sort of across the board. That doesn't change much. It takes a little more time on a new patient than an old one, but you also, you, you don't have the, the crises, like the medical crises, all the, some, somebody gets very sick very rapidly mm-hmm. uh, and it's an emergency. So I think that those things are a little different in inpatient. I feel like it's pretty regular. You, you can typically do your work and, and the time, you know, the time you have set aside, which just depends on, you know, your, what your average caseload is going to be, but I don't feel like it runs over like inpatient internal medicine. So I don't think it's a whole lot different than outpatient. When I did outpatient, I felt that that couldn't run over more because there were more phone calls. There were like from the patients, there were more phone calls. You had more prior authorizations for like medications. If you had somebody that needed to be hospitalized, there went your day, there went your day, like there went your afternoon, you would have to call security. You have to, you know, it's, it's a little different than an internal medicine person. You can say, Oh, just take yourself to the emergency room and you can assume they're going to do it. If you have a suicidal patient in your office, you can't just let them go um, unaccompanied. So then you got to call security. You got to get a ride. You got to get them to the emergency room. So I kind of felt like that was harder. Um, I don't know that everybody would feel like that, but for me specifically, I felt like that could really uh, lengthen out your day. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now is your, it sounds like, is your practice academic in some ways? Is it, do you, do you work with medical students and residents or is it more of like a hybrid where you do a little bit of private practice as well? 
Right. This is all. So the inpatient side is all academic. Um, there are residents always, unless they're on vacation, uh, there are residents always on the unit. And so it's, it's a one-to-one ratio, one resident for one attending. And then medical students, it's a little variable. Typically we have one medical student on the team, you know, this month or this two weeks, I have two because I have an acting intern. So I have a fourth year and I also have a third year. So it varies a little bit. Um, depending on the month, but typically you'd have a medical student and a resident. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and I guess from the pathology side of things, it sounds like you, in many ways, you see the full gamut of, of psychiatric issues. Is that, is that fair to say, or is there one particular area you focus on or, or is it kind of a, the full gamut? would you say? I would say it's the full gamut. I think in terms of the, it's going to be more of the severely mentally ill that we're going to get in the hospital. Just um, insurance companies don't just let you admit anybody. So you're going to see more people who are psychotic or schizophrenic. We're going to see people with mood disorders, but they're either going to be so depressed that they're typically suicidal or they're very manic. So you're going to see people who are, who are relatively sick compared to what you might see in an outpatient population once they get better, then they're going to be transitioned as fast as we can back to the outpatient side. Psychiatry has come up with, you know, partial hospitalization programs and intensive outpatient programs to sort of step them down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we do see a sicker patient population than you're going to see on the outpatient side. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think one thing that I learned very quickly last year, because I I didn't intern here where 80% 80% of it was at a county hospital, similar to, you know, Metro Health in, in Cleveland uh, here, where we, we dealt with a lot of medically complex patients, but also a lot of patients with complex psychiatric issues as well. And I remember it was always uh, a matter of having to medically get them medically stabilized before they could get, um, you know, before they could get the full psychiatric treatment if they needed, you know, inpatient versus outpatient. Is that, I guess, is that, uh, you know, fair to say at most places where, you're not really, you know, you're not going to manage somebody unless it's like something of life or death where until they're medically stabilized. Is that, is that fair to say? That's yes, absolutely. So we go through, you know, always different, (laughs) different iterations of what we need in terms of medical clearance, but they do need to be medically cleared because we just don't have access. The psychiatry sometimes takes a fair amount of room uh, so, so some places like university hospitals, Cleveland Clinic is the same way. They have put the inpatient psychiatry off of sort of the main campus. So we, even though we're still considered main campus, we're not located there. And we do have a med psych unit um, that is smaller, that is at main campus, but we just don't have the same kind of medical backup that you would have if you were um downtown where the, where the bigger hospital is. There's also, you know, not just us, but there's some also just freestanding like psychiatric hospitals and they have, you know, somebody like an intern or who might come in and do the initial history and physical or take any kind of consults that you might have, but you wouldn't have in those places, you know, you're not going to have access to like an MRI if you want it or um, other medical tests. So y- you really have to be pretty sure that they're medically stable before we take them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, 
so I guess on, on the inpatient side of things, you know, maybe take us through just like your typical day for that, you know, uh, you know, I imagine you probably do rounds and, and probably do, I guess, you know, obviously it's a mix of probably evaluating new and, and older patients. Um, you know, do you guys take turns who's admitting for the day or things like that, or I guess, how does, how does that all kind of run? So the admissions that come in overnight are divided up in the morning. So we know who's new in the morning. We try to keep those if, if like my resident admitted them, the resident is working with me on my team at the moment. We try to keep it with the resident to the best of our ability. Those get divided up in the morning. Um, and then the new admissions get seen the next day by us. So the resident or the resident that's on call, currently we're doing a night float system. So one of a resident will have already seen them, but we probably won't see them until the next day is the typical um, schedule for, for the new folks. We go in, you know, I probably start most days around eight, somewhere between eight and eight 30. And we will go around and sort of go over the, what happened overnight. And then we'll go around with the resident, the medical student and sort of see the patients. And typically we're done by 1130 or 12 then I'll need to go and sign, you know, there's always sign notes, you know, they need a back to work slip. Um, our patients, not all of them want to be in the hospital voluntarily. So some of them have to be civilly committed. So on those individuals, sometimes you'll have a hearing. Um, they've, they were during, they used to be in person. So pre COVID, uh, there's a attorney for the patient there's an attorney from the board who represents like us. And then there's a magistrate that serves as the judge. And those hearings will, the magistrate will make the decision. So if the patient wants to leave and I really feel like they need to stay, we'll have a hearing. The magistrate will make that decision about whether they stay in the hospital or whether they leave. So that would be thrown in there in any particular day. You might have a hearing. Usually we know of those ahead of time. So you can all, you know, that could take, if, if you're going forward with the hearing that could take 20 to 30 minutes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then those days when you are doing the more of your kind of wearing your forensic psychiatry hat, are those, um, are those days, are you, are you typically flying solo or do you have residents that come with you at those times or, uh, and I guess, how does that, uh, I guess, do you kind of do your rounds in a sense, uh, similar to how you would in the inpatient unit on those days? So at the jail, there's a nurse, there's a de dedicated behavioral health nurse who rounds with me. So we'll have a list of patients. It's a little bit of a wish list because it's always a really long list because there's more patients in the correctional setting than we can uh, sort of manage easily. So there's usually a long list. We see who we try to prioritize, uh, who's not on medication and who came in, who's a new evaluation. Anybody that we know is specifically having trouble that we've heard either from the deputies or from the medical nurses or uh, the counselors who are sort of seeing them routinely. So the, but the nurse will, will sort of round with me and we see as many people as we can in the time we have allotted. I don't, unless I have somebody shadowing, a lot of people are interested for some reason in correctional psychiatry. So sometimes I have a medical student or a resident who's really sort of interested in that patient population and really wants to come. So sometimes we'll have people shadow us and they will come with us and, and just basically observe. The forensic psychiatry fellows need to have a correctional psychiatry experience. 
So we have a forensic psychiatry fellow who is there as well. They are though at a, they're at a different time than I am. So they're, because you're really board eligible at that point, some of them board certified, get board certified during that fellowship because that's when they took their exam. Um, they can see their own patients just with supervision. And so they come at a different time, have their own individual caseload that they follow just like I do. So we don't necessarily intersect um, with the exception of super, uh, supervision for them. And I, Dr. Bodner, different psychiatrist has taken that over this year gotcha. from me. Um, and then at John Carroll, where I do student health, I usually have a resident there, is, there with me as well. So that's a, once you do your, your first two years in psychiatry, it's a lot of inpatient work, internal medicine, neurology, consultation liaison. But by the time you get to your third and fourth year, it's more outpatient. So it's an elective. Um, John Carroll is an elective doing you know, student counseling at cases and elective. So that's up to them. But I inevitably have a resident who's there. The resident is also seeing their own patients while they're there. And then we have the last hour of the day for supervision to go over things, but we're always there at the same time. So if there's any questions between patients, we can also address those. Gotcha. And then when you're working at, you know, in the universe, at these university settings, whether it's at Case Western or John Carroll University, is that, is that more of an outpatient or are those patients, do they kind of come in as an as needed basis or are these patients that you more follow on a long, like over a long period of time, I guess, maybe kind of walk, walk us through that. Uh, that aspect of your of your work. Those are undergraduate and graduate students who are enrolled in the university who are having it can be the whole gamut of mental health problems, but it is outpatient. So there's psychologists and social workers who also do like psychotherapy, um, counseling with the students if they feel like they would benefit from a medication. They'll refer them to us for an evaluation, and then we'll will do just like you would in a normal outpatient setting. It is uh, almost by design because you either graduate in four years or five years, or you know you, you decide to leave and do something else. It is by design sort of a shorter term model, I guess I would say. It's not like you're gonna follow somebody for 20 years. So it's a little shorter term. The age of the population is also sort of what we call transitional age these, these days, but you know usually between 18 and 26-ish. Um, and a case that's, you know, a case is an interesting university because it's kind of half undergrad, half graduate students. So, and we would have the, the medical students, the law students, sort of the whole range, PhD students, people there who might just be getting there, might be doing like an MBA. So they're just there for two years. So it's, it was quite a range. It's a little different in case John Carroll's uh, obviously smaller. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you mentioned, um, a little bit of the difference between a psychiatrist and then say a clinical psychologist. Could you maybe, maybe expand on that just a little bit? Uh, Cause I think it more so probably in the general population, people may, you know, often, as you know, often confuse those, those two things and there, you know, the training is very different. And I imagine what, you know, the intricacies of what you each would each field does are, are somewhat different. They are different. Um, uh, and there also can be some significant overlay. So psychiatrists go to medical school and psychologists get their PhD in essentially psychology. So we are more medically trained and probably have a little bit more of a medical model of looking at things, a little more focused on 
Um, are there any other potential physiologic problems or underlying medical conditions that are causing the symptoms and can prescribe medications? Now, there are states where psychologists uh, can prescribe psychotropic medication. Ohio is not one of them. Psychologists are going to do more psychotherapy. They'll do more psychological testing. So when you think about the Rorschach, the inkblot test or uh, memory testing, so like an in-depth neuropsychological testing, because we're looking to see either where somebody might have a specific learning issue or a learning disability or people who might be starting to show signs of dementia. And we're trying to better understand where their deficits are. The psychologists are going to do a lot more of the testing and a lot more psychotherapy. We can, as psychiatrists, do as much psychotherapy as you want. We're trained um, in psychotherapy and can do it. Uh, the reality oftentimes is that there are so there's such a need for psychiatrists and a need for people to prescribe medication that I think most psychiatrists probably don't do as much psychotherapy as they do medication management on the outpatient side. And the psychiatrists obviously are the ones who are going to have the admitting privileges in the hospitals because we're physicians. We're going to run the inpatient units, see the inpatients. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. And then how much of, how much neurology would you say you do? Cause I, I imagine during your residency, you did some, you know, neurology rotations. And I, I think I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's even some overlap with your guys' board certifications that there's like some neurology included on your boards and then vice versa. There's psychiatry involved on their, their board exams as well. I guess maybe how much does like neurology come into? Cause I mean, it's, they're so intertwined the, the, the brain, and then obviously the, the, the psychiatric component as well. So it, I'm pretty sure the requirements haven't changed that during your residency, you do two months of neurology. And I don't think there's any specification that it has to be inpatient versus outpatient. Pretty sure it can be either. We did a combination like a month of inpatient, I think a month of outpatient. In your boards, we have a big section that is neurology. So our board certification actually says the American Board of Psychiatry in Neurology. Doesn't mean I'm board certified in neurology and should not be practicing <laughs> neurology. Um, but it just means that there has been an understanding that there's a fair amount of over, overlay between the two and that we need to have a pretty decent understanding of neurologic issues that could cause psychiatric symptoms. So we do have a big piece of our board that is uh, neurology. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and I imagine that again, kind of touching on the differences between clinical psychology and psychiatry, I imagine that training also helps when you're, especially when you're evaluating maybe a new admission or, you know, trying to look for other underlying causes, whether it's general medical or even some type of underlying neurological pathology that manifests as a, you know, psychiatric, uh, presentation. If for, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I do think, you know, that's why the psychiatrists are the people who are admitting people to the hospitals and one, because we prescribe medication. And typically if you're sick enough to be in the hospital, you're probably going to be on medication unless you've had a substance induced psychosis, let's say that's pretty short term and they start to clear up within a day or two of being in the hospital. They might not be, but the vast majority of people in the hospital are going to end up on psychotropic medication. 
and understanding neurology is is key or at least knowing what you're seeing looks more neurologic than it looks psychiatric because gotcha. missed yeah things can get missed so um it's just important information for us to know sure sure um i want to just touch briefly on what what is your call schedule like as an attending where how often do you take call and then when you do take call I guess, what are you responsible for and what do you, what do you typically encounter when you're on call? So we have it pretty easy because I'm in an academic setting. So the residents, uh, we have a night float resident uh, who is at the hospital. We do have an answering, like an answering service. So all those outpatient calls, they're supposed to screen those. The, the residents could probably say answer that better. I don't know how good of a job they do, but the residents get all those calls. We don't hear anything about from the patients at night. The only thing when we're on call, we're like on phone or used to be pager backup, but everybody just used their cell phone. Now we're on backup call to the residents. And so uh, if they're seeing somebody in the emergency room and they want to discharge the patient, they'll call about that. Mm -hmm. If they're going to admit them, they're obviously going to a safe place. They don't necessarily, they're obviously free to call anytime they want, but they don't have to call on those uh, routinely. So it's usually a week. We're a big department. So that week gets uh, spread around a lot of different psychiatrists within the department. So it's only a few weeks out of the year. So the call is really not significant in terms of overnight on call. We rotate around the weekends. So the inpatient attending isn't the person who has to work every Saturday and Sunday. Those weekends get rotated around. That's a very complicated schedule. There's one person for each unit because we have two units. Um, and it gets worked out based on academic rank and you know how much of an FTE, which you know how many hours, not everybody's a full-time employee. So there's some complicated schedule. It probably works out to every six weeks. You might be working the weekend on the unit, on the covering an inpatient unit. Then it's, it's, so it's not significant. I think if you are out in a more private practice setting, the call burden could be significant because you wouldn't have the big department with the number of people with which to spread that out. So that's just by design. I think when you're in an academic setting, you typically probably don't make as much money, but then you're not on call nearly as much either. So you can choose what you prefer. Gotcha. So it kind of evens out. And I imagine in private practice, it, like you said, it probably depends on how many partners you have, you know, like any other type of specialty, how much, you know, that, you know, versus if you have one or two partners versus if you're like in a bigger group, that's 10 docs, I'm sure that's, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that helps as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, interesting. Interesting. Um, and then I guess what other types of, you know, non-clinical activities are you involved in? Do you, you know, it sounds like you do a lot of teaching, um, and then do you do, are you involved in any research or, um, any other types of, uh, like non-clinical, uh, work that you, as part of your role as a psychiatrist? I I did some research in the area of mood disorders probably early on, maybe within the first five to 10 years um, of the time that I was out in practice. I have sort of moved away from that. That is a personal 
that's a labor intensive um, entity that I felt like wasn't where my passion lied. I'd rather teach, work with the medical students, work with the residents, see the patients than I would um, write up papers and, and look at the research raw numbers um, just, and that was time consuming. And I do feel like, you know, the people who are really interested in research do end up, that does bleed into your free time or bleed into your personal time. And so that for me, uh, just didn't work. And so I got away from that, like just would rather do other things, but there's lots of research going on. There's lots of places for research. That's just not my area. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then as far as um, other things that you could potentially do as a psychiatrist is, you know, in addition to your clinical work, is it, I think we touched on, you can be like an expert witness. Um, are there other things where, you know, you could provide maybe like some consulting services or, or, or things of that nature uh, that would be useful to, to people that you're, that you're aware of? There are so, there's, it feels like there's so many different things you can uh, get interested in. You can, you know, if you're really interested, I think in the, the educational aspect. So medical school, uh, medical student education, resident education. I do think there's psychiatrists often who end up wanting to be like the Dean of a medical school, just because what they're really interested in is the quality of medical education and making sure that it's, it's a well-rounded education that people look at all kinds of, um, individuals and like at a holistic approach, not, not just sort of picking systems apart or working in silos. So I do think that, uh, there are a lot of people that that appeals to there's community psychiatry, there's addiction psychiatry, there's just so many different fields within, you know, that like places that you could end up working, patient populations, if you found that you were really interested in one thing, it's just so vast, it's almost hard to even uh, define that because people, there are people who just do consultation, they do hospital consults. So they just like consultation liaison because they'd rather be like in the hospital and keep their medical skills sharper than probably a lot of people who are sitting in the outpatient arena. Um, child psychiatry, there are people who really uh, love child or working with families. So there's just so much that you can do. It's, it's hard to even, I think, sort of quantify that. And if you're like me and you decide you would like to go learn about something else, you can certainly do that, which is, so it's, it's pretty vast in terms of the different areas people end up. Interesting. Cool. Cool. Um, is, I'm curious, is, is psychiatry a field like, for example, emergency medicine or radiology, like diagnostic radiology or what hospitalist medicine has become where it, you can work in like shifts or you can be like do a seven on seven off type, or it's amenable to people who would maybe want to work part-time if they wanted to you know, devote time to, you know, raising families or, you know, other interests of theirs is that it's like, you know, versus like a field like neurosurgery is not amenable to something like that is, is psychiatry one that could be amenable to that. It's hard to find that it's hard to find a way unless you're going to do like emergent, there's big emergent psychiatric emergency rooms that do have psychiatrists. And in that field, because you're just working in the ER seeing the emergent cases, you could probably do that. I don't think it lends itself to that really well because in the outpatient arena 
people like to see their same doctor. So, um, you know, so I think in terms of the seven on seven off or more of the shift work, which I think, you know, some people end up doing, it's hard because you have your own patients, even on the inpatient side, um, it would be a little disjointed to be constantly passing those people off. We probably have a little more contact with the families, talk about things like, does the patient need a guardian? And uh, we have a lot of our folks who don't have housing. So we're who are homeless and we're trying to work pretty aggressively and trying to get them either into a group home, sometimes a nursing home with a behavioral health unit. So you kind of get into a lot of psychosocial issues too. So it would make it hard to sort of pass those off. So I think in terms of the seven on seven off, I would say no. In terms of part-time, absolutely. I think, so when my kids, my older two, um, I had while I was a resident, my first two children. And then when I was looking for um, a job, I took a half, I came to university hospitals and I just did inpatient half time. So um, they would go to preschool and I'd pick them up at preschool and we'd be home for the afternoon. And there's lots of people who just say they're only going to work half time or they're going to work two or on the outpatient side, you can say you're just going to work three days a week. So it lends itself very well to that. I think it's easier to set your limits or your time frame because there's not as many emergencies in a medical kind of way. I think it's easier to sort of keep your boundaries and set your limits and keep your hours uh, to part-time if that's what you choose to do. So it's a great part-time job. It works super well for me. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. That's great. Um, I guess kind of winding it back. I always, I always ask every guest this, what, when you were a medical student, what, what made you go into psychiatry? What, what was kind of <laughs> what drew you to the field that, that you do now? Well, I think it was probably the thing that I said I would never do. So <laughs> I never, because here I am, I wanted, I thought I was wanted to do pediatrics. So I, I think maybe not to be pejorative, that was probably a female thing. I thought pediatrics was going to be great. I was going to work with kids. And then I did my pediatric rotation and just felt like for me personally, it was either uh, earaches and, you know, sore throats, or it was something horrible in the hospital. You'd see kids with bad tumors or, you know, needed bone marrow transplants. And that, um, I think those pediatric oncologists are very special people, but uh, so it was either really sad. And when I realized I didn't like that, I started thinking, well, the one thing that I really, really enjoyed was psychiatry. And I had been in a state hospital. So I'd done my inpatient rotation as a medical student for four weeks on an inpatient state hospital lots of schizophrenia, mainly, you know, very psychotic thought disordered people. And I absolutely thought it was fascinating. We had some guy take apart his car looking for his soul and he buried the car in his backyard. So to me, it was just amazing that your brain could get that brain chemistry could be so out of whack, that it could make you think things like this. And I just absolutely loved it. So at the end of the day, um, I came around and said, you know, the thing that was really calling my name that I think I felt very interested and passionate about was psychiatry. So here I am. And I would not second guess my choice. I, I don't think there's anything about it that I would change or that I would pick anything else. That's a good fit for me. Great, great. I guess kind of going off that, what would your advice be to medical students who are maybe like in their third year, they're 
they're running through the core clerkships, obviously psychiatry is, you know, one that everybody does. What would you say if they're, maybe they're kind of interested in psychiatry or considering it, uh, what would be your, your advice for them to kind of help them decide that? Cause in a way, like you've mentioned, psychiatry is in a lot of ways, very different than many other fields in medicine. Um, obviously you're still physician and you use your medical training, but it's, there's some aspects of it that are very different. I guess, what would your advice be for, for those uh, particular students? It can be considered a little more of an art sometimes than a science, because sometimes where I would say we don't have the as good a scientific understanding of the psychiatric, the major mental illnesses that we do of a lot of medical illnesses. And um, there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, I think if you're able to, and you know, this always comes with a downside. I know we have moved to, to having our medical students just have a four week psychiatry rotation in the, in the third year. And they do two weeks on the inpatient unit and then two weeks on consults. I don't love it because I don't know that they get to stay around long enough to really see people get better and progress through the treatment. So that's the downside to it. The upside to it is that they get to see people doing very different things. So I would say if you have the opportunity to see different areas, so you might really love inpatient or you might really hate it, but you might love outpatient. So because they're so different, the patient populations are so different, you're going to have a much longer term relationship with an outpatient than you are with an inpatient. And it's so different that I would say if you could see it in a couple of different settings, that would make a difference, even different hospitals, right? Even, you know, one inpatient unit is not the same as another. There's even a lot of variability there. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then I realized we could do a whole episode on this, but I guess what's your general advice for people applying, they've, they've made that decision to go into psychiatry and, and they're applying to residency and maybe doing, like you said, the, the one student rotating with you is doing like an actor internship. What are kind of some things on like the best ways to present themselves and, you know, demonstrate their passion for the, for the field? I do, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting to me because back when I applied, it was an easy residency to get. It's getting more competitive, which is a wonderful thing. I just feel like we need a lot of psychiatrists, so they should increase the number of positions available. If you're interested, I think the acting internship is a nice way for us to get to know you. So I do think that those, you know, if you have a place that you know that's where you really want to go, I think that. Uh, doing an acting internship is a is a very good idea. If you can do, even if it's not huge, but like a poster presentation at a conference, I do think that if there's some research on your CV, that also appears to be helpful. Other advice, um, those are probably the two things that I think um, that I would look at, and and just to sort of develop relationships with people uh, so you can have more experience uh, in areas that you might really like to see more of. And that wasn't very articulate, but I think that, you know, developing some relationships with people who are in the field, who can sort of steer you in the right direction is a good idea as well. Sure. Sure. Um, and then you, you, you mentioned research and then I guess, is it, is psychiatry also a field where, maybe some students who have like an interest in, maybe they didn't go as far to go to do an MD JD per se. Um, but like maybe students who have an interest in the legal system and 
the law and things like that. Is that, do you think that could fit well with someone who has those types of interests as well? Sure. Especially if you're interested in, in, uh, forensic psychiatry. So we do have one of our new fellows that's upcoming, that's coming from our program. She's actually a MDJD and, um, that's a good, you know, that's a, obviously a natural fit because she has all of that experience already in the legal system, which the rest of us have to get to know and understand a little bit. So, you know, if you're interested in forensics, that's sort of a natural fit. Otherwise, just to be a general psychiatrist, I don't know that it's, it's all that helpful. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, and just kind of to close things out here, we ask everybody this, what do you do when you're, you're not, you're so busy doing all these different things. What do you do when you're not being a psychiatrist, what do you do outside of outside of your the hospital in your free time? I would say I play some tennis, um, go on vacation. I prioritize that highly, and spend a lot of time with my family. I have two grand as of Monday. I now have two grandchildren. So, oh, congrats! Uh, yeah, so I just spend a lot of time with my children, and and now it's going to be their children. So um, those are the things I think for me that I enjoy the most. Awesome, awesome. I guess I'm just curious from your perspective. You know, there's a lot of talk in medicine these days of like keeping yourself balanced and burnout and those types of things, and um, you know, mental health among physicians and healthcare workers. I guess what. I guess, do you have any kind of general thoughts on that? Like for, especially for people early in their career, how they can help prevent that or, or things they can do to, you know, get the most out of their career, but not drive themselves into the ground, if you will. <laughs> I, I think watch your hours, watch what you sign up for. Um, and it, most of us would say, it, don't financially get in over your head so that you're forced to work more than you really have to. So my happiest times, and sometimes I think I should go back to that, um, were those half days when I just did half, half inpatient, then I went home mm-hmm. and you know, I did that for a long time, probably longer than I really needed to given my children's ages, but I did that for a long time, which was kind of the, the best of both worlds. I could uh, be home with my kids, but I could also go to work and keep my foot in my career. So I think it's just not biting off more than you can chew and keeping your hours uh, realistic. And if you can afford not to work a full-time schedule, then I would do it. Great. Great. Well, Susan, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. I think I certainly learned a lot more about the the field of psychiatry and I, I think the listeners have as well. And I think they'll definitely gain a lot of value from this. So thank you again. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as eBooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. 
DaVinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.